Welcome to In the Margins, the podcast. I'm Father Shannon T.L. Kearns. Each episode of this podcast is a sermon, and in each season we'll work through an entire book of the Bible together. If you're looking for engaging sermons with progressive theology, you're in the right place. Welcome to In the Margins. Our text today is Colossians 1, 15 through 23. I'll read it for us now from the Common English Bible. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation. Because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is first born from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens. He brought peace through the blood of his cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. But you need to remain well-established and rooted in faith, and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. This message has been preached throughout all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, became a servant of this good news. When I was in high school, I started writing songs and poetry. Now, mind you, these were not good songs or poetry. In fact, as I got older and had many, many, many unrequited crushes, these poems were awful and angsty. But I needed the outlet. There was something about poetry that allowed me to say things I wasn't ready to say in another way. It allowed me a mode of expression that freed me up to explore. It wasn't about expressing things exactly. It was more about expressing the feeling. The feeling of loneliness, the feeling of isolation, the feeling of not being seen. But there are other poets who don't just deal in angst, and through their words they bring us the feeling of joy, the feeling of connection, the feeling of transcendence. Sometimes we need something more than prose, more than doctrinal statements, more than statements of meaning. We need poetry, we need art, we need the feeling under the words. Have you ever had an experience where you felt something so deeply, but you were completely unable to explain it? Or you watched a film or listened to a piece of music that moved you to tears, and when someone asked you why, you couldn't answer? There was something profound going on, something that touched you, and you just couldn't put it into words. You might struggle to name it. You might simply shrug your shoulders, but the feeling is beyond words. On the flip side, have you experienced the situation where you needed to turn to art or music to fully express what you were feeling? Maybe it was like the angsty poetry of my youth, or maybe you actually have talent and can make something beautiful. It's like when Jesus turned to parables to drive the point home, or when people told fairy tales to their children to warn them of the dangers in the woods. 
We turn to art when the feeling feels too much. It's one of the reasons why many of us love worship music or liturgy. It allows us another way to experience the presence of God, to feel something that we maybe can't even explain. The portion of the letter we begin with today starts out with what some have called a hymn, others a poem. It's a piece of writing Paul includes that scholars think would have been familiar to his audience in Colossae. Maybe a part of the liturgy of the church, maybe a song they were used to singing. Verses 15 through 20 form this poem. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the one who was first over all creation, because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. Whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who was first born from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens. He brought peace through the blood of his cross. It's a complicated section. You might read it and feel your eyes glaze over. All of these questions of existence and creation. This section might, depending on the kind of tradition you were brought up in, bring to mind endless debates of the minutiae of Christian doctrine. Lots and lots of mostly men trying to make this passage into a literal doctrinal statement of belief. But listen, Paul could have just laid out the theology. He's very good at writing complex thoughts, weaving together arguments and making a point. He turns to poetry here for a reason. There is theology here for sure, but he's also trying to get at something more than just a doctrinal statement. He's inviting people into the wonder of the story, wonder that can only really be captured in poetry or song. There are certain things that we need to feel. We can't just assent to them intellectually. We can't just study them and know them. We need to allow them to be in us, work in us. We need to feel it. And sometimes art helps us to do that way better than another argument. So Paul, making this vital theological point, turns to poetry because he wants us to feel it. Because the crux of the point of his letter is here in these verses. As I mentioned last week, Paul is writing to a group of people, a new community of faith, who were probably experiencing some harsh criticism from the people around them. They might have been in danger from the political order. They might have been considered dangerous and outsiders because of the way they were behaving. And Paul is writing to encourage them, to reassure them that they are doing the right thing. First, he anchors them in hope. Remember the audacious hope that is stored up for them in its fullness in heaven. Now he's resorting to poetic language to say, this Jesus you're following, who you're getting criticized for following, the one who people are telling you was murdered by the state, the one who people are encouraging you to reject, this Jesus is telling you something about God. Jesus is showing you what God cares about. Jesus is showing you who God is. Jesus and God in all of this poetic language are intimately connected. 
Jesus is the image of God. And God, by the way, has created everything and has power over everything. So all of the authorities that are criticizing you, all of the powers that separate you, all of the places where there is injustice, they don't have the final word. God does. And not just that, but here's the really remarkable section of this passage. In verse 20, at the end of the poem, Paul says, God reconciled all things to God's self through Jesus. Now, you might be saying, yeah, sure, I've heard this before. Jesus died so God would love me again, and I just have to believe in him. But that's not what this text is saying. Let's keep reading. Once you were alienated from God, this could also be read as strangers to God, and you were enemies with him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. Paul is saying something really remarkable here. He starts us with this idea of creation, the image of God first over all creation. And how does the creation story start? God created and it was good. The story starts with goodness, with harmony, with peace, with right relationship between God and people. Paul takes us back there again, the beginning of creation. And now he reminds us that things have gotten messed up. And sometimes, no matter how hard we try, we mess up too. We are complicit in systems that cause harm. We do harm with our actions or words or lack of actions or words. We participate in systems that cause harm. And it's not just individually. We can look all around us, as the people in Colossae could look all around them, and see tons of things that aren't right. Systems of oppression, people who don't have enough, violence. Now Paul is saying God is making it right. God, through Jesus, is reconciling all things. And here's what's key. There's nothing you need to do about it. It's done. It's happened. Peace has been brought. You've been reconciled. And now you stand before God without blame. I really want to drive this point home because it matters. You don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to not be trans. You don't have to not be queer. You don't have to follow a checklist of behaviors. You don't have to do anything. God already did it. And not just for you or me or humanity, God is reconciling all the things, meaning creation, too. You might need to sit with that for a minute, but you are assured of it. You have been reconciled. Now, of course, this starts to raise more questions. Um, if everything has been reconciled, why is the world still so messed up? Why doesn't it feel like anything is different? And if I've already been reconciled, why do I need to follow Jesus? These are questions the people in Colossae would have been sure to be asking. And I bet that a lot of us are asking them too. So let's start with the second question. If I've already been reconciled, do I need to follow Jesus? The answer, coming from a priest, might surprise you. Nope. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to work for justice. And I'm sure you're waiting for the but. But there is no but. 
The work is done. You are reconciled. God isn't going to punish you. You aren't going to get sent to hell. So if the only reason you're following Jesus is because of the threat of hell or God's wrath, you can let it go. And if you're following Jesus and still afraid all of the time, this should assure you, too, you're reconciled. I can hear you saying, okay, maybe I believe that, but why is the world so messed up? And that is a great question. Throughout the Christian scriptures, we see this idea of process, that the work has begun, but it's not yet completed. And I think we see this in Colossians when Paul reminds the community that the hope they have is fully stored in heaven, which again isn't the promise of heaven when you die. Instead, we have a much more complicated theology going on here. God, in the work of Jesus, has begun something new. Everything has been reconciled. And also, everything is still in that process of reconciling. This is why you'll get language like Jesus being the firstborn among the dead. The complete fulfillment hasn't happened yet. We have this sense that everything has changed and everything is changing, but it's not complete yet. But we are reminded that the beginning of the story is goodness and reconciliation. And the ending of the story is goodness and reconciliation. We are simply in the middle. And that brings us back to our question, why should I follow Jesus? There is an invitation here to be a part of the continued reconciliation. God is inviting us to continue the work of Jesus, to let people know they are already reconciled, and to live out that reconciliation in our communities, not because we have to or God will smite us, not because we need to preserve ourselves so we get to go to heaven when we die, but because we are anchored in the hope, because we believe the reconciliation is already here, because we are co-workers with God. And again, this isn't a you have to or else. This is a you get to. Paul is saying, you've experienced this goodness. You've felt this hope. You've started to live out this faith already. Doesn't it feel good? Doesn't it change things in you? Don't you want to keep going? And don't you want other people to experience this as well? And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 23. But you need to remain well-established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. This message has been preached throughout all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, became a servant of this good news. Now, I know you heard the but there, and you might be like, see, you're just making this sound better so you can trick us. So this is a moment when we have to go to the original language, because the Greek but isn't the same as our English but. My friend, the Reverend Adam Rao, is going to help us out with the Greek here. He says this, and I'm quoting, in Greek, there are a variety of kinds of if-then statements. This one here is what's known as a first-class conditional clause. A first-class conditional clause is an if-then statement where the if part is assumed to be true. This is important, so let me say it another way. The if-then statement in verse 23 is one where the if part is assumed to be true. That means that Paul isn't saying you must do this or else. Rather, he assumes that the Colossian followers of Jesus will continue to believe and stand firm just as they already were, end quote. 
This tracks with Paul's thanksgiving for the church, that he had already heard of their faith and their love, rooted in their hope. He's commending them already for standing firm and encouraging them to do so. Paul is summing up the good news, the message of God, the hope of Jesus by saying this, the beginning was reconciliation and goodness. The end will be reconciliation and goodness. We are in a place now where God is reminding us in Jesus that all things have been reconciled. You know this. You have felt this. You have hope that the fullness of that reconciliation is coming. So now then, how do we live? And that is what the rest of the letter tries to answer. You might be like, oh, so now here it comes. The list of do's and don'ts, the rug pulled out from underneath me, the way to earn my place. But it's not that. It's instead the consistent reminder, you are already reconciled. So believe it and live like it. And this is the crux for us today. In the midst of a world where so much is not right, in the midst of a world that some days doesn't look at all reconciled, do we, can we believe? Do we, can we have hope? And this is where we lean into mystery. We're not entirely sure how the complete reconciliation happens, but we know it's going to happen. It's already in progress, and we get to play a part. The question is, will we? Will we choose to believe in reconciliation? Will we choose to live out reconciliation even when it's hard? Even when people tell us we're out of our minds or naive or worse? Even when people tell us it can't be done? Even when people say we should just do what everyone else is doing? Even when people say it's hopeless? Do we... Can we believe that there will be a day when all queer and trans people will be able to live freely and without fear? Do we, can we believe in a world without war and violence? Do we, can we believe in a world where everyone has enough to eat and a safe place to live? Do we, can we believe that we can do something about any of that? That is question for us today. What does it look like to live in this hope? How does it change things for us? What does it require of us? What does it invite in us? What does it inspire in us? I believe there is a boundless creativity in the universe, in us. There are a million ways we can answer the questions and hurts of our time. There are a million things each of us could do to work in that reconciliation. But we have to have hope. We have to believe we can make a difference. We have to believe all is not lost. And oh, if we do, can you imagine communities filled with people who were anchored in hope, who really believed that things could change, who wanted to start living out the new, fully reconciled creation now? That would change everything. If we really, truly believed we were reconciled, that we were back to goodness. We would treat ourselves with more kindness. We would walk through the world as a reflection of that kindness, and we would be agents of that reconciliation everywhere we went. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's not an obligation. It's an invitation. It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's a recognition that the inbreaking of heaven into this place is already occurring. It's not the promise of hope when we die. It's the promise of hope 
right here, right now, in the midst of this world. If we really believed this, it would change everything. In just a moment, I'll offer us a benediction, but before I do, consider this the passing of the virtual offering plate and an invitation to coffee hour. If this podcast is meaningful to you and or you want to go deeper, head over to patreon.com slash in the margins podcast to support the work and join the community. Patreon supporters get a downloadable workbook for every episode with journal prompts, action items, and more resources, plus space to have conversations with other people about each episode. Your support enables this work to continue. So go to patreon.com slash it. So go to patreon.com slash in the margins podcast to sign up. May you live in hope. May you be assured that you are included in the all things that are reconciled. May you live without fear. May your knowledge of reconciliation change your life. May you be held by God, our parents. May you follow Jesus, our brother. May you be inspired by the Spirit. Go in peace. That's it for this week. If you appreciated this episode, make sure to share it with a friend and leave a review so that other people can find it as well.